And a subset of the music business is, of course, show business. And in show business, some people are all about the show. Some people are all about the business of creating great shows and doing exceptional business. My guest is today, Danny Nozella, TK Enterprises. Uh, he manages Dolly Parton and a slew of other artists. Who else are you working with these days, Matt? You know what? I'm working with uh, Barry Gibb uh, and the Bee Gees. Uh, catalog. I'm working with uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band. I'm working with Kenny G. Uh, I'm working with um, uh, Jerry Halwell of the Spice Girls uh, uh, on a on a North American level. I'm working with um, another band called Kovic, who I'm signing to a major label overseas. Uh, they're a pop artist uh, that I've been uh, working with for, for several years, and then. Ali Rowland came into my office, uh, who I hired uh, because he's got a TV film background with the studios that were being built. So I hired him for that. And he said, hey, will you take a look at Kovic again? Well, I went online and uh, was uh, researching and planning and strategizing on him. I, I looked into his songs and everything. And next thing I know, he's got 45 million streams independently. So I ended up signing that, signing to a major right now in the middle of that. I have another band that I'm developing called uh, The Brothers More. Uh, and I have another band that is on Big Machine, uh, a solo artist called Brock Gagne, which is like a cross between um, Hank Sr., uh, Roy Orbison, and Dwight Yoakam. So he's really different, um, extremely talented, very excited about it. And then I also have uh, an artist, Callie Twistleman, who comes off a... 30,000 acre ranch in California. Her father is a, it's the ranch is seven generations handed down and he's a cattle and grain farmer. So it's not just somebody from, you know, some girl from Detroit, Michigan, trying to make it in country music. She is the real deal. She is a, um, uh, rodeo competition, uh, uh, had won awards for rodeo for, um, barrel racing for roping, uh, et cetera. Uh, she's actually out in California right now, uh, opening up for uh, big and rich. And, uh, we have her on a slew of different, uh, tours and different things across, uh, we're, we just put the second single out, which it's coming up to national cowboy day, <laughs> uh, which I think was, is the 24th of, uh, July, but her next single is cowboy and she just put an EP out. Uh, so that's what we have in, the up and coming stages. She signed to E1 for publishing and Copperline for label and uh, major marketing dollars behind everybody. Well, listen, I've always felt that a, a great manager has to be passionate, connected. They've got to have capital or have access to capital and they have to be able to execute and get results. That has to be undisputed and undeniable. And you've been able to do all of those things uh, to a very high degree. But you established a reputation early in the business. And the reason I accentuated your uh, fidelity to doing good business in the intro is because uh, you were a cleaner early on. You would come into tours that were hemorrhaging money, hand over fist every night, and you would just sit down and clean them up. Tell us a little bit about that process and establishing a reputation uh, in a component of the business that most people don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole because it doesn't make you the most likable kid on the block. Right. Well, in, in, 
if you look at streams of revenue now, it's pretty tough to just be an artist with a record deal. You have to be branded. You have to be a brand. And because you need those other streams of revenue, because when that pandemic hit, I think people realized that you just don't know anything can happen in business. And that crushed the industry for a good, you know, 15 to 18 months. And it's still not fully back in. And so what's happening is we, we took a look back. I, I got that education from Slipknot that money couldn't buy. I toured the world every, you know, from clubs to stadiums and learned that and learned, you know, different. And where, where did you find that, that some of the excess was when you were cleaning these tours up? Like where, where were they wasting a lot of money, generally speaking? Well, what happens is you have to set a budget based on the guarantees that you make. And it's all about bottom line. So if you're looking at um, a 30 city tour and you come in and your, you know, your guarantees equal up to a certain amount, but the profit's not there, then you have to make those necessary adjustments. And the first place, unfortunately, that you look is production. You know what I mean? The band always has to sound good. So you, that's the last place you want to dig. Is in, the, is in the PA or in the monitors. If the band can't hear themselves, they're not going to be happy <laughs> with, 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 uh, with the show. They have, that's, I know one thing, and at least in all my years that I've been doing this, is that if you don't have a good monitor engineer and you don't have good in-ears or wedges or whatever your artist uses, if they can't hear themselves and they have a bad show, then it's not going to be good because they're going to have a bad show every single night. That's the first place that you go to clean something up is making sure that the band is happy on stage, making sure that they can hear themselves every single night, no matter where you are, because you know you have to adapt to the surroundings that you're in and making sure that monitor engineer is experienced and that you know they, because once they can hear themselves, they have a happy show every night. Second is your front of house. You know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So you're, playing for a full you're playing for whether it's 10 people in the audience or a hundred thousand people in the audience you're playing for people that you're trying to win over you know a percentage of that audience to become a fan and so you don't want to skimp on that but lighting you have to budget accordingly so whatever you take in uh there is you know a certain amount of money depending on where you're at in the playing field if you're a new artist you don't have anything if you're a mid-level artist you have some money for production. And then if you're uh, a, a, an extremely established artist in arenas and stadiums, you can take whatever you want to a certain degree, but even there it can get out of control. Okay. I've had to go in and clean tours that, you know, they're trying to stuff 40 trucks into a 18,000 seat arena. So you've got stadium production that you're trying to put in to an arena. And what's happening is your, um, even write down all the crew is overworked. Okay. You have riggers that are in the ceiling hanging, you know, having to make sure they make zero mistakes when you're hanging, you know, tens of thousands of pounds above you with lighting and sound and pyro and everything else. But when they're having to be overworked because the production's too big and getting into the next, by the time you're loading out, you're, you should be loading into that next venue and people are overworked. And, but what happens is, is everything's an expense. So the minute you go over, you know, what your profits are, you know, there's people that just 
don't look into it. And, you know, it's too late when you're out on tour and then you have to go out and you have to cut back. It happens all the time. It's not announced, but things happen. And when you go in there, the first places you look, you know, is you have to look at the staging at the, you know, at the, the lighting and the, you know, whether you have uh, pyrotechnics or whether you have special effects, you have to look at all that stuff first, your video, you know, um, but you have to go out with a conservative production based on the money that you make on the road. And as you grow bigger, you can get a bigger production, but there's very big established acts that have also overproduced their shows. They've gone out there on several tours, you know, thought, oh, we're, we're grossing, you know, 150 million here. They come up at the end of the day. Well, you got 80 trucks, you got three stages. <laughs> I mean, you know, this stuff should be determined, predetermined. And that's one thing that I've been extremely successful with is I predetermine all this stuff. I would, I don't even send someone out on the road unless I know there's a profit involved or that my artist or client understands where they're at in the process that, Hey, you know what? If I go out here, I'm only going to break even, you know, I'll give them projections. Here's, here's a budget with a conservative production. Here's a budget with overproduced. Here's a, here's a budget that's under to make you more profit. Tell me what you want to do. And that's what we'll do. But I don't think anybody want to go out on that road to lose money. And especially nowadays with everything going on, you have to really, really watch the bottom line going out on uh, in touring right now. And especially with everyone, plus the market is flooded. You know what I mean? Because everyone was sitting. Yeah, there's a lot of traffic right now. Yeah, everyone's sitting home for 16 months. Now the market is completely flooded, which it's great. You know, doors are open again. But there's only so much economy to go around too. So eventually, you know, where someone would go out and see, you know, every single one of their their favorite artists in a year at a show, they're maybe only buying one to two shows a year rather than eight or nine shows a year. You know, depending on and and you've broken that process down, um, you know, to make it quite simple, simplistic sounding, but it actually is very complex because. You also want to make sure you're creating a great show for the consumers in attendance and ticket buyers, right? Okay. And then sometimes I would say it depends on the stage of the career of the artist as to what you would decide is expendable or not. So if an artist is on their way up, maybe it makes sense for them to break even on the tour and invest back in their show. But once they've reached a, a critical threshold where they've been at this for a decade or more and they got to start making money, that's where it might make sense to make it more about the music and a little less about the glitz and the lights and the pyro. Yes, because what happens is you really have to build to that level to where you can afford that luxury. Because really, you know, extra lighting, extra video, extra pyrotechnics, extra special effects, those are luxuries. Do you know what I mean? And those enhance the show because we are in entertainment. You want to have the pyro. You want to have the extra lighting. You want to have the extra special effects. But those things cost money. And so, you know, you have to be very conservative while you're building up to that point. And the other thing is, if you go at it immediately, okay, if you go at it right into the extra production, one, it's, you're, not, you're either going to break even or not make money, okay? And in, in, because, you know, most people just do it and then ended up pulling it away later on down the line because they haven't done it. They haven't done the pre-production work. They haven't done the actual budgets you know what i mean they wait till they get on the road to 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 smooth the budget out but in all actuality you you, you look at it and especially nowadays you really have to watch every single dime spent you know what i mean in what you're doing and 
you know, at the level of the game that you're at. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and find ways to monetize that brand when you are not on the road. So you don't have to always be in a position where you're trading your time for money as an artist. Right. Exactly. Branding is so important. Uh, and it's not something to where you want your artist or your client to go in and just start slapping their, their, their brand on everything because the fans are real smart. They sniff that out if it's fake. So you have to be genuine and it's got to be organic and it's got to be a product or something you believe in or stand for. And, you know, the match has to be there and know that you want to use that product or you believe in that product or you stand behind that product. And that's really what they got to have because there's a lot of people that go out and just stamp that name on everything. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned and with my clients, that diminishes the brand. We don't do that. We are calculated, we're methodical, we look at every brand, we see whether that brand, we, and not only that, when we have a brand, we don't just, we take two steps back, we research that brand. Hey, um, do they have any negative press? Hey, is there any negativity towards this company? You know what I mean? You, you, you don't want to just look at the dollar bill, you know, and say, oh, I'm just going to, hey, I'm going to take this money because this brand is offering me this money. Well, we don't just do that. We take a step back. Hey. The, the finance, the financial reward is just that, a reward. You know, at first you make sure that the alignment is there, you know, that they're, they're a quality company, they, they've got ethics, they are, you know, no bad press, no bad anything, no negativity whatsoever with that company. And that's what we do. We, you know, we do that to the best of our ability, really that, that process, you know, and we've been successful with it. Like when the pandemic hit, touring's gone. What are you going to do? Cut deals that have nothing to do with public events. Hence, recording deals, book deals, time life deals, American greetings deals, food deals, podcast deals. You know, we cut everything to do that had nothing to do with public events. And that's how we stayed busy. That's how we stayed focused. That's how we didn't have to stop you know, in the middle of the pandemic, we just kept rolling. Plus, you know, we built, uh, you know, we built out two TV film studios, but I made them so that they're smaller, but state of the art. You know what I mean? Most people don't want to spend the money on silent HVAC. Most people don't want to spend the money on doubling up the Instaquilt for soundproofing. Okay. Um, I have a guy that I grew up with named Gary Dorner and he came in and he's got a construction background. He, he's a multitasker, uh, but he came in and built these studios out and uh, did it in the middle of the pandemic. And we went to Vanderbilt, who we have a relationship with, and we had them, I mean, we were paying, you know, uh, a, a lot of money for COVID protocol. You know, uh, it went on, a, on a TV film set, we'd pay $12,000 a day and we get eight nurses, we get three dedicated lab people, so um, we took outside air conditioners and pumped them into the into the studios so that um, even though we had silent HVAC, uh, we didn't want people breathing in recirculated air. We wanted right. fresh air. The thing that the CDC said down here was make sure you got fresh air. So because uh, we were reading and we're looking uh, because we uh, uh, basically Dolly said, hey, I'm going to do a Christmas album. And I'm like, oh, how are you going to get that done in the middle of? you know, COVID and pandemic. She goes, well, uh, we'll test everybody and make sure that Joe, I'm only, I'll be in the, the booth 
I won't go in with the engineer. We'll walk in and out. So we'll do it really, you know, uh, she wasn't in where the engineer was. And so we just kept everything separate and she was able to do it. And we were able to, you know, nowadays we, you know, it's pro tools. So you just send, send the stems all the way around and everybody records their parts on there. But now, okay, we just recorded an album. What are we going to do now? Well, I close the, uh, I'm going to close a book deal. I'm going to close a time life deal. I'm going to close a American greetings deal. Um, and what else I'm going to do is I, I'm going to finish these studios out, which we did built out state of the art. We also put steel in the ceiling so that even though they're made for TV and film, because they're soundproof and silent HVAC, we also put in there steel in the ceiling at 19 foot so that you can hang full production, half a ton of point. So now, you know, we have several clients coming in, uh, and we've never advertised, but we have clients coming in to use it for their tour rehearsal. But at the same time, we have feature films coming in, we have TV shows coming in. Uh, so we have multiple different types of clients that are coming in here, and we're building a larger one down the street. But so to get back on it, though, uh, she wanted to record this. So I built these out. And then I went to um, all the different unions and said, Hey, what's your protocol? What does is your COVID protocol? Because we need we want to film. Obviously, I'm not putting Dolly Parton in there <laughs> in danger. So what we did is we created a system because we watched what was happening in uh, out, out on the West Coast. Uh, Cedar Side and I, it's like, hey, we're full of all the people on the sets because right? they weren't doing. I, I don't think they were doing the protocol that I was doing because what I did was cut the deal with Vanderbilt. OK, and what I did was. Three days prior, you had to have three negative tests before you step set on my set the first day. Okay. So the nurses would meet everyone at seven to 9 a.m. These are not rapid tests. These are lab tests. They would get tested right. and then they would be met by a security and by eight nurses and they were taking the temperatures. Anyone that had a temperature, you're off to the side. Okay. At 9 a.m., we start the production. By 9 a.m., we had all the results back, okay? In two hours, the labs, they gave us results back immediately. I caught 40 people with COVID, and I eliminated them from the production before they ever walked in through. I got two gates, okay? Eight-foot gate, three-foot barbed wire. So you're not even getting in through the second gate into the studios unless you get through one security and two, you know, eight nurses that are taking your temperature and testing you by 9 a.m. I opened the, I opened the gate for the people that uh, uh, I, cause I caught 40 people with COVID, but they never entered my studios. And then what I did is when I caught someone with COVID, I'd bring the guys in with the hazmat suits and Gary and Ali would have them uh, uh, do the, uh, it killed everything. There was a certain type of powder or, or fog that they would fog the studios. Then I had huge HEPA filters as well. And then I had also COVID officers that were taking your temperature every other hour and writing it down. So we really, um, we caught 40 people with COVID, but we never spread it within our production because we wouldn't let anyone in unless they had three negative tests. So the first day on set was their fourth day. And we knew what, what they were that day because I had the test results back before they even entered into my studio. So everyone, That's like yeah, military-like discipline protocols. There, there you go. Yeah. And then, so what happened is I cut, I licensed uh, unprecedented deals because we're in the middle of COVID. Three songs to Pandora, three songs to Apple TV, three songs to 
Amazon, three songs to Sonos, you know what I mean? Uh, songs to Jimmy Fallon, song to uh, Macy's Day Parade, song to Rockefeller Christmas Tree Lighting C Ceremony. I license songs overseas, BBC, Good Morning Britain, uh, um, Graham Norton, okay? So, and then I went to Australia, Channel 9, boom. So I'm licensing these songs all over the place, which helped with the uh, promotion because um, that right there, based on what I licensed out, I was able to at least break even and pay for that production of video, okay, that I was marketing on a global level. And then on top of that, we were supposed to do something for another provider, which I won't name. And I said, you know what? It, it, it's a lot of legal, Dolly, me going through all this. It's a, it's a hell of a lot of legal. I said, why don't we do this? Why don't I ex-nay this deal? Because it's not done yet. And I don't feel great about it. And I said, why don't um, uh, we, you add three songs? Because Dolly's like, hey, I want to do a Christmas lighting, a Christmas uh, like candlelit uh, vigil, you know, just a little 30 minute show or whatever, and because no one's going to have a great Christmas this Christmas. So I want to, you know, at least try and bring them some positivity. And I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we add three songs instead of doing 30 minutes? Let's make it a full hour, add three songs, add more dialogue. And, and I'll go try to sell it to network. And if I can't sell it to network, we own a piece of Christmas content that will eventually monetize. And she goes, okay. And I like woke her up in the middle of the night. So she stayed up all night, <laughs> made sure that the songs and the dialogue were correct. We called the uh, uh, Kent Wells, the band leader the next day. He had the band all rocking, ready to go. We did it. And pretty soon I licensed it to CBS. I licensed it to CMT. I licensed it to BBC and I licensed it to uh, overseas. And it just exploded. I did 14.1 million views, number one in the market. You know, we crushed it. <laughs> And we we're competing. Are you licensing uh, any new compositions on Dolly or is it almost all catalog stuff? No, right now we've got a song coming out and we're um, this week we load into the studios uh, HSN. So we're loading in because what I did is I've closed <laughs> about 15 of the biggest branding deals I've ever closed in my life for DP. Uh, she we have taken her to the number one Q score in the world. Dolly is the most brandable, marketable person in the world. So we're taking advantage of that. Number one, the deals that I've closed, you know, we, uh, we turned 400 offers down and uh, the 14 of the cream that rise to the top, that's what we just did. You know what I mean? We're looking at legacy. We're looking at future, um, you know, because I'm looking at, uh, uh, depending on DP, we have, uh, we have stadiums all over the world on hold, but we just don't know, you know, what we want to do. Uh, for the future. I don't know if she's going to tour again or not. So that's what we're trying to debate. But in the meantime, we have branding going on that will live forever. And, you know, we're attached. Now, quick question on that, Danny. Um, as you're setting standards for branding for Dolly, you obviously have very high standards. Without disclosing uh, anything confidential or financials, what are the things that you're looking for to give her an alignment and then make sure that it's going to be of the standard that's going to be acceptable for her and your uh, related legacy as well. Well, we've chosen companies that that are, you know, are, are massive companies like a, a food company, a pet company, but the largest in the world. You know, like right, they're fifteen billion dollar corporations. So we have a food company, we have a pet company, we have a fragrance company, and the fragrance comes out on the twenty seventh of this month. And we do HSN, and then it goes into like seventy-five thousand stores worldwide. 
Then after that, we go on this other platform called NowWith, which is brand new, which is an amazing platform. You'll have to look it up. Um, and uh, then we also have like a wig deal. We have Williams Sonoma. We have Tabletops Unlimited. We have um, biodegradable fork spoons, knives, and and napkins going into 24,000 Walmarts. So, you know, it's just all sorts of things like that. And um, we have an overwhelming amount of offers, but we can't do them all. And we only want to do the things that Dolly's passionate about. She loves food. She loves pets. She loves wigs. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. So, you know what, if you see a trend here, it's because, you know, even though we could have accepted all those offers, all those 400 offers and made a lot of money, but instead we took a step back, let the cream rise to the top, only went with passionate things that we're passionate about, fragrance, pets, food, wigs, things like that. And um, also, I can't even tell you about that. We've got, a, we're going to have, we have an album coming out next year that Dolly um, did a book with a basically the largest author in the world, Dolly and this author did a book. We're announcing it in two weeks. I'm not trying to date this, but we're announcing it uh, soon. And she wrote the album that's custom made for the book. Okay. And then we'll have a feature film that's also attached with that as well. Super but exciting, man. We, we did a pop song with uh, the fragrance called Scent from Above is the pop song. And that's about ready to come out on the 27th. And uh, I did it with uh, very current producers, very current production. And we think this thing's a hit. So that'll be the first one that comes out. Then after the first of the year, we drop the new record, okay, for the, the single. I mean, she's just a writing machine. And uh, we've also um, got 4,000 pieces of content back from Iron Mountain. Uh, so we, it's just nonstop. There's no, so when there's you're money. releasing on uh, that, on top of that, then you look at Barry, who just got Barry a book deal. Yeah. He's got another Greenfields album coming out, you know, uh, and then he's got the TV and film deal. So it's like, it's not just one client, then, you know, Casey, then uh, uh, Kenny G, he just got an autobiography. So we're, we've, you know, every, every one of the clients is, you know, with all these branding things coming into play, look at every single one of the clients because there's something for everybody. So what's the strategy to take a pop song to the market with Dolly Parton at this point in her career? Are you going streaming heavy? Are you doing exclusives? Are you trying a radio strategy? Like, tell me a little bit about what yeah, we, you're deploying. Yeah, we don't go radio uh, because they haven't played Dolly on radio in a while. So what we do is we put a um, in the last four years, so if you looked just in the last two years, in the last 24 months, we put out three songs, Faith, which is number one, two number ones on Billboard, okay? It was with Galantis, which is a major global uh, 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 producer. Uh, uh, two is with Mr. Probs, and three is with Dolly, and that has done 350 million streams, and we were set up through a guy named... St. Fleur, and he uh, was the brainchild behind it, put them all together. As a matter of fact, he has the number one song right now with David Guetta, Galantis, and Little Mix. Well, guess what? He produced the song Sent From Above. So the production is extremely current. Dolly killed it on the song. I can't wait. But to answer your question about what I do for marketing, 
what we do is we do heavy TV, heavy viral marketing. The fragrance in itself is going to have a huge marketing because Dolly's song will be across all the platforms. Then we release it as a single. We go heavy with the DSPs, so the Spotify, the Amazon, the Apple, uh, 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 iTunes. So we go straight, you know, for those streaming services, and we cut deals with them. At the same time, we get her playlisted, and so it's a builder. And so we go heavy viral and heavy TV is really what we do. We have a very, very robust digital campaign going on, and we haven't even signed it to a label. As a matter of fact, I have the next one as well, which is going to get announced. We haven't signed that record to a label yet either. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm famous at, hey, we, we do it backwards. We pay for it all. Then we announce that we're doing it, and then I see what partners come to the table. If I don't like the deals, we have the financial to put it out on our own. Puts you in the driver's seat, man. Yeah. Puts you in a position of power. Yeah. It's a brilliant strategy and one that I think is, uh, you know, if you're capitalized well enough to do it, it's the way to go. Because then you either end up with a partnership you want or you just do it yourself and you own everything. Right. No, yeah. you're right. Um, probably one of the most vivid illustrations of what you bring to the table as a manager um, at least if we were to synopsize it on, on one career story is having the discussion about where Dolly was in 2005. She hadn't had a manager in like 17 years. You came in initially, I believe, as a cleaner to work on cleaning up uh, her financials so that her tours would be profitable. And then take us to where she is today. Obviously, you shared a bunch of that already, but Give people an idea of where the Dolly Parton brand was and what level of business she was doing in 2005 when you started the process. Well, you know what? I'll take it back a little bit uh, um, so that I can give you a very quick history. Um, if you look at the 60s, Dolly was opening on the Porter Wagner show. That really gave her her start. He had a nationally syndicated country show and America and overseas fell in love with Dolly Parton. Okay, they did just off that show. That's the 60s. In the 70s, she got signed to RCA Records. Here You Come Again was the first platinum seller, and she sold tens of millions of records, okay? So she was making money. She was selling a lot of records. She had, uh, I Will Always Love You left Porter Wagner at the end of the 60s, then the 70s went into RCA and was just killing it, okay? However, during that period of time, Dolly was on tour, but it was a bro-dominated country world as it is today. And it's Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton opening the show. It's Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Dolly opening the show. She was not the closer of the show. She was not the one that was um, getting the credit as the headliner, okay? Because we all know, at least in this business, that you know the headliners are the ones that get the credit for the show, not the openers. So that was what was happening. Then if you take it to the end, to the early 80s, 81, 82, or whatever that was, 70s to the early 80s, uh, Dolly and Kenny tour. Kenny Rogers was massive. He had sold 40 million units of The Gambler. Okay. He was the, talk about bro country. He was it. <laughs> and pop. So at the time, and Dolly would open the show. And then at the end of the show, Dolly would go out there and they'd do Islands in the Stream and three or four other tunes and but that was it. Dolly was opening the uh, Kenny shows and they were in arenas and some stadiums and they, they did big places and were selling them out. But that's what it, uh, that's what it was. But Dolly wasn't the headliner then. And then she took at like 83 to like 91, she took off and did movies. All right. So therefore she's still not a headliner. Okay. We're, we're going now from 
83 into uh, here's what she did headline fairs, festivals, casinos, private dates, soft tickets. Okay, I won't say Dolly wasn't a headliner because she's massive, but she was soft tickets. Okay, she she wasn't going out selling out an arena of hard tickets full on by herself with uh, you know with uh, other opening artists. That wasn't. She needed a believer like yourself to come in and start start building towards a strategy that would establish her as a headliner because she had the numbers, she had the appeal. You know, everyone knew who Dolly Parton was in the eighties, and she had a monster film career, like. It was just a matter of getting someone like yourself involved to go, hey, this is really being under-indexed and here's how we can move this forward. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what happened. But uh, it, it, um, if you take it from the 80s, she did movies, you know, uh, Nine to Five, Steel Magnolias, uh, you know, uh, Talk Radio, uh, all this, you know, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So she did all those kind of movies and made a fortune at it. And then 91, she, she re-signed to RCA Records, did Slow Dancing with the Moon, went platinum. And then after that, she had fired management, okay? Sandy Gallen, uh, she had fired management in 91. And then um, she did a, the Bluegrass Air. She signed, in 92, she signed to Wealth Company, Sugar Hill Records. But the only thing is, is uh, they didn't really put the marketing dollars behind her, okay? And they didn't like... You know, I think they probably at that point was thinking, hey, she's more of a heritage artist. And, you know, she, they didn't have the belief that she was she was finished, they thought, basically. But she wasn't. And so what happened was, is that went on till 2004. And I came in then to, like, help out with the tour. And uh, that was, uh, I can't remember who was running that. But then I, bring up to uh, uh, 04. And when I came in, she didn't need me for anything. She didn't need me for financial reasons. She didn't need me uh, because she uh, to make her a star because she was massive star. And so what she did need me for though is because she didn't have a manager from two, uh, 1991 to 2004. Okay. And uh, when you don't have management and not used to it, and she was basically doing it on herself and hey, she wasn't doing too bad. Dollywood, Dolly Stampede, Splash Country, making hundreds of minutes. It's like, you know, she's uh, she's definitely not needing me for, for that. But what I did is I came in and looked over, 2004, looked over that she was doing 1,500 seats in, in 18,000 seat venues. I'm like, something's not right. We did like 20 shows and I was a manager. Then I came in 2005 and same thing, you know, and we went out there. I was like, wow, you know, it, it's like I was the security, I was the stage manager, I was setting up the teleprompters, I was getting on stage, stage managing, I was everything. And because uh, sometimes when you clean something, you have to just do it all, you have to make it happen. And so, but I'm looking at all this, running around, doing all this stuff, but going, going hey, there, there's definitely something wrong with it. Why is, why is this not equating? You have this big star, but the ticket sales aren't there, but you look back at the history, like I just talked to you about, bro dominated world okay women are still not up here in that you know so she was never you know pitched as a headliner back then and then when we came in i said in 2006 instead of going with all these different promoters in 2004 2005 and i started manager in 2005 i said let me come together and put something different together for you she said all right danny you're trying to you know do something different and uh prove yourself to me so what i did was i ended up um, saying, let me put you into three to 5,000 seaters. I'm going to book you in 23 shows in 
in theaters though, not arenas, not uh, because from 2004 and 2005, two major promoters, they didn't do the research I did. I pulled yeah, what I One pulled of the things I noticed, uh, I just want to say quickly is, is I listened to the uh, Promoter 101 podcast that you did, by the way, great job. People should go yeah. check that out. Dan, Dan Steinberg's yeah, he's great. podcast. Uh, but one of the things you said is that when you came in, you identified almost immediately that Dolly had the wrong agents and the wrong promoters and people who just didn't see her uh, as a potential headliner. And that that was one of the components of her career that you had to clean out and then put the right people in place. Correct. Uh, I Well, yeah. And even prior to that, I had to figure out because, listen, I wasn't even that big of a fan of country music or whatever when I came in. I just... You know, I, I definitely know her songs. I definitely know how great of a person and musician and icon she is. But what I did is I came in and I pulled her pole star history. So I looked back as far as I could go and I researched that history so I could know where the live music card ticket buying consumer was, which was tough to find at that point. And then two, I, I pulled a sound scan so I could see where a music buying consumer was on a global level. And then I went to all the labels and so I put this together and went to the accountants and they gave me information. So I had stuff back to like the seventies. I could see what she did. You know what I mean? The shows that she did, the, you know, uh, I was looking through all this and, you know, still pretty, pretty myth, but I said, okay, uh, I'm going to put you in three to 5,000 seaters in 2006 after we didn't like the results of the 2004 tour. Cause she's 1500 seats and 18,000 seaters. So, uh, she said, okay. And so I picked the promoters. Okay, I picked uh, each one of the promoters individually because I have relationships with a lot of these guys. So I went to the market and it could have been AAG, could have been Live Nation, could have been a local promoter. It's just whoever I had the relationship with because I'm a relationship guy. So I figured this out and we put tickets on sale six months in advance like I do everything because that therefore, if there is a market that's underperforming, we can geo-target that market. We can, you know, get the artist or Dolly or whoever to do more press to try and get those ticket sales up and do whatever we can do to try and sell those tickets in anything that's underperforming. And that's exactly what I did, but I didn't have to do it because I put tickets on sale in 2006. I sold 23, three to 5,000 seat theaters out first time in the history of her career to sell hard ticket dates. And we made, you know, we, we made a little bit of money and she's like, okay, and then what happened is in 2007, I got all these offers that were less than America. They're small offers and they're overseas. And I said, Hey, do you ever want to go back overseas? And she goes, Oh, last time I was there, they flew me commercial. They lost my passport and they put me in a camper. She goes, I don't, oh think, my I God. She goes, I don't think I ever want to travel overseas again, but you know, uh, can't say I blamed her at that point. Yeah. She goes, if you want, you can put something together. I'll look at it, but I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be that interested. I said, well, I know a different way. Okay. And so what I did, first thing I did is I, I hired Neil Warnock from the, he was the CEO of the agency group at the time. And now he's uh, president of UTA, the touring. And um, I did Slipknot with him. So he and I had a relationship and I finally got a guy on the phone because he wouldn't take my call and I was getting mad at him, but he finally got on my call and I told him, Hey, it's Dolly Parton. That's not Slipknot. I said, are you interested? He said, absolutely. Um, so I flew over there and when I flew over there, um, one thing I found out is based on my history is that, Hey, no one wants to put Dolly Parton in arena overseas in 2007 because she's not, she couldn't even sell, uh, she went over in 2001 on the bluegrass tour 
and it sold 50% capacity. So it didn't do well. In theaters, probably too. Hammersmith Apollo, things like that. Right. Okay. I had the history. I don't have it in front of me, but I've studied it immensely, you know, thoroughly. And so, um, so I'm meeting with the head of Live Nation Europe, head of AG Europe, head of this, head of that, all these promoters. And so what we decided is let's downscale the arenas. They didn't want it. They didn't want to put her in. They wanted to put her in theaters, you know, like sell the lower level out or whatever, because they thought it was the same. And I convinced them that it was the wrong promoters and the wrong agents. And we, I had to let everyone go. And Dolly didn't want it because she's so loyal. She likes to keep everybody. And I said, no, this is what's got to happen. And, and I'll do it. And I did. And she allowed me to. And so, therefore, um, I brought these people on. And we're like, okay, 1,500 seats in, in 18 to 20,000 seat venues. So I saw, because I'm from Minnesota, I saw that Prince was over there. And he um, did the Mail on Sunday, which sells 800,000 papers a week normally. And what he did is took a Best Of album, shrink-wrapped it into the paper, and it ended up selling 1.2 million. So he sold 400,000 more units than the paper did. Well, you know what? I did the same deal. I uh, I got like four or 500,000 pounds out of, I can't remember, it's a long time ago. But I got four or 500,000 pounds out of the Mail on Sunday. And um, I went and took a live show, I think, and cut the audience noise out, made a new master, sent it overseas in just a cardboard sleeve, very cheap. And we put it in all the papers and Dolly sold 1.8 million papers. Okay. I knew that we, that something was different, that something happened when I did that. And I was like, wow, I called Neil and, I, and we both said, oh, something is different. You know, for Dolly to sell that many best of albums and that many papers. So we put tickets on sale six months in advance. And I was basically told, you know, hey, Dolly's basically, are you sure you want to take this risk with me? Because, you know, accountants, attorneys, they don't believe in your budgets. They don't believe in anything. And then for lack of a better phrase, yeah. your balls were a bit on the line, too, because Dolly actually threatened to fire you if she went over there, did all that work and didn't yeah. end up making any well, money. Right. There was a lot of pressure on you. There was. She basically told me, yeah, you sure you want to take this risk? Because. If you um, if you lose me millions of dollars, you're fired. Are you sure you want to take this risk? I said absolutely. I said I, I I said hey, I've made tens of millions of dollars for other clients, and I said this is no different. And I said I'll put my job on the line. And then I called Neil Warnock, of course. I said hey Neil, guess what? If I'm fired, so are you. So we better do this thing. And that the first thing that came up was mail on Sunday. Second thing, we put tickets on sale. Third is lo and behold, within 60 minutes. We sold out 14 arenas, and I don't mean, I mean the entire arena. And then what happened is I put another nine shows on sale, and we sold out 23 and some odd shows, okay, 23 shows. And uh, uh, it took three weeks to sell out the other arenas, and I'm telling you what, we crushed it. I can't even tell you because it was such a massive number that she didn't want anyone to know, but we were at 2.1 or 2.2 to the dollar. So all I'm telling you is it was tens of millions of dollars in the gross. Who's the largest grossing at that time? Uh, uh, the largest grossing tour in the history of her career at the time, because we've blown that away. The following year, 2008, I went to Neil and I said, I want more money and less shows. He goes, well, we got to go into, we got to go into stadiums, mate. I'm like, let's go. So we, we put 10 stadiums on sale and eight, eight uh, arena shows across 
and we sold those uh, stadiums out in three months. And what, what capacity were those stadiums set at in terms of uh, sellable tickets? All over the place, uh, you know, because like I was Slipknot and Metallica, I had done it in 2003, I think was Slipknot Metallica uh, overseas. And I had done the same stadiums, but they didn't have any seats on the floor. So if a dolly seats on the floor, that takes a bit of the capacity down. So we were in like the 30 to 50,000 range. Do you know what I mean? But it was an evening with dolly. You were selling me Stockholm Stadium, Malmo Stadium, uh, Oslo Stadium, Denmark Stadium, you know, uh, uh, all, all, I mean, we're just selling selling things out all over the place. Plus, you're collecting currencies in a lot of these markets that were, you know, well, valued at higher than the American dollar in some cases. They are, but I was getting guarantees. Right. <laughs> so I got guarantees, and we hit percentage on everything. So it was, you know, uh, what happened in 2007 uh, ended up, you know, doubling in 2008, you know, because the pound was still strong. And so we just hit it. And the biggest thing I did is uh, to get Dolly back in, because she wasn't really, you know, at, 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 at the time, you know, she was not really wanting the tour a lot. So um, in America, I custom made her two buses and then got her flying private. And, uh, you know, because she was still saw, flying commercial when I got to her and I'd done several flights with her. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, it was people lined up from the back to the front of the plane. There was no privacy, no nothing. And I said, you deserve a better way to travel. And so I put her on a jet, you know, we flew to LA and she's coming off and she goes, Oh, you're smart. Aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> and, uh, Back to what makes a great manager, a great manager executing and getting results. I mean, yeah. you, you will get into like, you built out specific tour buses for her. You made the experience great for her, but you also had massive success for her so that she walked out of those markets with more money than she'd ever seen up to that point being yeah. out touring. And that is what probably concrete solidified your relationship with her. Right. It was an, it was an evening with Dolly. There was no opening act. And what I, but what really got her into, into touring was the fact that I, um, that I've custom made buses. I custom made her two buses in America. So um, what I do is I leapfrog the buses with the jet. Okay. So um, I did the blueprints that I made the American buses. I took that blueprint. And I sent it over for, to York from beat the street. Okay. And who owns beat the street, which is the largest, uh, they own Phoenix and, and, uh, beat the street is the largest bus company and touring bus company in European continent. And what I did is I called him up handshake deal, uh, because that's the, the type of relationship that we have. And he built two buses, two and a half million pounds. So $4 million of buses where he built these buses for they're the first buses on the European continent to have bathtubs and showers in them. Okay. I had them. And now everybody, I mean, there's major stars that are using those buses still. And what I do is I take all Dolly's comforts at home, her, um, you know, her candles and her blankets and all the crap she's got to have, uh, candles, blankets, uh, she has, um, coffees, teas, creamers, all that crap. So I throw that into a couple cases and I ship it overseas. And then what happens is we go to like Stockholm Stadium. So that's the first stadium. I have uh, her assistants go and take all the comforts of home and put them on the, the, both buses, okay? And so she has the coffee she loves, the creamers she loves, the fans, the blankets, the candles, the incense and all that junk. She's got it, okay? All the comforts of home I've given her, okay? Then what I do is I keep one bus in Stockholm and I take the second bus and I put it in Viborg, Denmark, okay? And then what I do 
as I have uh, Brian Siever, who's Dolly's director of security. We have dogs all over the world. So we started this in 2006 and we just a practice that we do. One of the practices that we do is we have behind each one of the buses travels a van with hand with dog handlers in there and they have a protection canine and a detection canine. So basically what happens is um, Dolly and I fly in, we land. Okay, which I have like 400 hours of footage. It's never seen the light of day from our rise. But anyhow, we fly in, we land, buses come right up to the jet, pick us, Dolly and I up, head over to the venue. By the time we hit that venue, that dog is already, uh, has already sniffed that venue uh, probably 12 times, every seat, and then we lock it down to the backstage area. And then when we come in, the other handler comes out, which is the protection canine, which is a attack dog. Okay, and he comes out and he is on the door for the rest of the night. Okay, then then uh, uh, as soon as we, we do the show the next day, I can sleep in a hotel at night knowing that I've got, you know, some, some, a dog that's going to tear your throat out if you come at the client. So I can go to bed at night knowing that my client is protected. So uh, anyhow, uh, the next day we do the show. As soon as we're done with the show, we go back to the jet. We fly to Viborg, Denmark, where I have the identical bus sitting there. Okay waiting for us okay it picks us up on the tarmac goes over where brian's got a second set of dogs and they've already sniffed the venue already waiting for us ready to you know throw a mistake you know dogs are ready and then the bus that's in stockholm sweden that goes off to oslo norway to wait for us and i leapfrog those buses all over the european continent i did that in 2007 2008 2011 2014. so every one of the world tours we did i had the buses i had the dogs and on top of that, Dolly in 2011 said, hey, you know what? I want to uh, go to Australia and I want my buses. I said, whoa, okay. So I got on, cut a deal with a major promoter in Australia. We sold out 14 arenas. I like, boom, I hit the lotto. Again, we hit the lotto. And I said, all right, evening with Dolly. So one, I had to find a, uh, a plane that's going to get us there, you know, uh, with the jet, which I did and figured out the logistics to get us there. And uh, because it's uh, it's not as easy as people may think it is to get there and do it all in one swoop, because a lot of the jets don't have the extended range on them in order to get from Nashville to Sydney, Australia. But I had made it happen and I made it work. So anyhow, um, I called him up and he says, I said, one deal. I said, I'm uh, Jerry Edelson, Steen, God rest his soul, Dolly's uh, old attorney. Uh, uh, he said, uh, I said, Jerry, I want you to put in the contract with Australia uh, that if my buses don't get in the country, I can pull the plug on the tour because I'm not putting her in hotels after I've given her the luxury of sleeping on, you know, four million dollar buses and, and and that are equipped because, listen, she, she if I don't make her happy, she's not going to go out and play. That's the bottom. Right. And, 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 you know, obviously we've, we haven't toured since 2016, but she uh, uh, she wasn't uh, I, I would have never got all the dates that I got out of Dolly to do if she wasn't happy on the road. So I wanted her to be comfortable. She deserves the treatment. She's an icon. I've cemented that status as an icon. You know, you can't take that away from her and you can't take that away from me that she is cemented in, her legacy is as an icon, a global icon, okay? And when we hit that Australian market, they said, nope, your buses and your, uh, uh, your buses are not coming into our country. And I'm like, well, that's not good. So the promoter is like, oh, we'll just put her in uh, hotels. I said, no, we're not. I said, I'm not coming all the way there and having a miserable tour because we're in hotels. Because when you're somebody 
like a Dolly or, you know, uh, anybody that tours, okay, not just Dolly, anybody that tours. When you have to go into a hotel room and you get in there at 12 midnight and you have to get up at 6 in the morning and leave the next day and you're dragging 60 bags of shit into the hotel, excuse my language, but you're not going to be comfortable. You're not consistent. You're not happy, okay, and that happens all tour long. Well, that burns you out. And you have none of your creature comforts like you do on the bus and the way you've set that up. I've set set it up. So she has a home everywhere. She's got the same home. So we just use the jet, the two buses. No one has any clue what's going on because the logistics take me six months up here in my damn head just to figure it out on paper. Okay. And I've taught my staff members, Kyle McClain and and, and, uh, how to do this. Okay. So he's really got it down because it's not easy. Everyone thinks it's easy. It's not. You have, you know, you have the jet, you have the band entourage, you have the crew entourage, you have three entourages, 100 people, and plus taking a small city and moving it all over the world. It's easier said than done. But anyhow, yeah. um, they said, no, your buses can't come into our country. I said, well, I got to pull the plug of the tour. You're like, oh, no, 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 you can't. We're in hotels. I said, no, 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 we won't. And he says, what do you want me to do? I said, go to your prime minister. So he did. Two days later, I get a call from the prime minister. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. Tell me what your plan B is. I said, with all due respect, Plan A is plan B. If my buses don't come into your country, I said, we don't come. And that's the way it is. And I put it in the legal with all due respect. And so next thing you know is um, they come back and uh, she goes, give me 24 hours. I said, no problem. 24 hours later, uh, Anthony Albanese comes on and he's, uh, he's the minister of transportation. He goes, I don't know what you said to the prime minister. But he goes, we wouldn't let so-and-so's bus in. Oh, I don't want to say their names because they're big. <laughs> we wouldn't let, you know, the Popemobile in, but we're going to let Dolly's buses in, okay? And uh, so, but what I did is... And what were their concerns and reservations about letting them in? Four feet too long and three inches too wide. And I said, listen, you guys have triple trailers there going across the bush. I said, what does it matter that this is four inches, you know? Oh, it's an axle thing. Well, I said, we'll move the axles. Whatever we got to do, we'll make it happen. They, hey, they let me ship those buses from the UK all the way around South of Africa, all the way up, drop one bus off in, in uh, Sydney, drop, or I'm sorry, one bus off in Perth and one bus off in Brisbane, because or Adelaide, because that was the next show. So what happens? Dolly and I jet in, land in Perth, bus comes up to the jet, just like normal, bus goes over to the venue. Uh, as soon as we were done with that one, back to the bus. And then that bus, or then hopped on the jet, and we went to um, Adelaide, and we leapfrogged those buses all over, uh, all over Australia for the first time in history. And not only did that happen in 2000, and we did Australia and Europe, because hey, Dolly was still in theaters. We were doing arenas overseas, but we were still in theaters back in America. Okay, so we hadn't brought up the level. This is 2011. Then what happened is 2014, we're like, uh, we, uh, because we did 2011 was uh, Australia and Europe, and I shipped the buses there. Well, 2014, Dolly's like, I want to go back to Australia. I'm like, oh, great. Are you kidding me? So I'm like, all right, same thing. 14 arenas, sold out. And then now. And And no problem getting the buses there this time, no problem. Well, what happened was Anthony Albanese became the vice prime minister. Right. Transport minister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
there you go. So you have some leverage though, too, because man, what a shit storm of bad press would that government have gotten at the time had you guys publicly said, Hey, listen, we want to come. These shows are all sold out, but we can't get our buses in, and that's the deal. Well, they were saying this Dolly's manager says, No bus, no tour. So they're making me look bad. But then what happened is when we got there, I got us all in pictures, you know, with Dolly. I had her taking pictures with Anthony. Oh no, it worked out great. Because yeah, the, the the people I think at the time were there wasn't a great relationship between the people and the government. So it really like made them look good to say, Hey, we're let we're allowing this to happen. You know, Dolly's buses in and everyone was trying to figure it out, but they couldn't understand what was going on with the buses because the logistics were serious and how we were moving it. Not only that, Jorg flew over and a couple of people flew over and drove the buses. We had four drivers going from Cairns to Perth. And not only that, those buses were like you know, when you're out in the middle of the bush, you know, you're hitting alligators or whatever. You're hitting camels. You're hitting you're hitting uh, a kangaroos. I mean, and you can't stop. It's like Mad Max. You know, the, the trucks there, when they, <laughs> when they come in, they look like Mad Max. They have steel bumpers on it. And, and if you're doing 60 miles an hour and you're in the middle of the bush, when everything known to man can kill you, uh, it's like, um, you know, you can't stop when something comes in the middle of the road. Because if you do and you roll... You know, it's it's a it's a it's a really um, I, I have a lot of respect uh, for the Australians and people because that place is, uh, you know, it, it can be very dangerous in the, in the middle of the bush. And there was four drivers going from Cairns to Perth, which is like four thousand miles across the bush. But we did it. We got it done, made it. And uh, I did it in 2011 and I did it in 2014. And then 2014 was Glastonbury. And uh, Dolly said, hey, in 2008. When I went back in 2011, Dolly's like, oh, I get cold and stadiums put me back in arenas. <laughs> so I put her back in arenas, okay, uh, back for multiple nights in arenas in the European market. And that was 2011. And we were arenas uh, 2011 in Australia. And we went back in 2014 and did arenas in Australia a second time. And then we went back into Europe and did arenas again. And then 2016, we get to... America to the largest North American tour, which we did with you across the uh, across the uh, Canadian. Uh, such a pleasure, by the way. Oh, that Man. was hey, that was such an amazing tour. You run such a tight ship, but everybody's friendly. The culture is great. I mean, and that starts from the top down with you and Dolly. Like everyone from the the catering folks to the security guards to the local venue people are all treated with the most. Most respect. It's uh, it's pretty cool to bear witness to. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a leader, not a follower. And uh, so it, it everything stems from your leadership, from you know your employees to the people that you work with. You give them love and respect, but you expect that same treatment back in return. You know. And you do have a really high standard. I remember as we navigated from the on sale uh, to you know, which by the way, the show's all sold out basically in the first day. Um, but you were on top of it. It wasn't like you were resting on your laurels. And I think that's one of the things that really separates you from some of the managers of elite, of elite artists in this business is that a lot of managers get a cushy paycheck and they get a, a great position and they've got job security and they kind of rest on their laurels a little bit. But you've been so aggressive in what you've continued to pursue for your clients and and revive their relevancy and 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 bring the most good faith dollars back to them through their brand. Uh, what drives you, man? 
Well, you, you know what? Um, you manifest your own success. I think I said that in that other one too. And I say that a lot because you know what? Stuff doesn't fall from the heavens and you just let it, you know, you can't just wait there and twiddle your thumbs for opportunity to be dropped in front of you. You make it happen. We make it happen. You know, I, I am really uh, diligent with my staff that it's research, it's planning, it's strategizing, it's going through those methodologies. Then when we think we have the right game plan, we execute and follow through. But also we create things, we plant seeds, you know, we are, you know, you have to make it happen. And that's what we do. We look for opportunity. We don't wait for opportunity. We find it. That's what we do. That's the difference. Well, and how easy would it have been for you in 2005 to just uh, continue to exist within the dysfunctional infrastructure that Dolly had in place and try to make the best of it, maybe move the needle a bit. But you had to have those hard conversations first with her to say, hey, listen, we got the wrong team around you and here's why. Right. And here's what the potential is if I'm allowed to put my soldiers on the ground, right? Which is what right. you did. And man, that is, it's not easy to get there. People underestimate how difficult those conversations can be. Very difficult. Uh, but you know what? I had to prove myself to her. You know what? It took five years for me to, to earn her respect. She didn't just give me respect. I had to earn it. And not only that, you earn it by, by doing what you say. If I say I'm going to do something, you know what I mean? 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm, I'm doing it. You know what I mean? If I tell her I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And by me following through with the things that came out of my mouth, by me saying, you know, hey, I'm going to do this and then doing what I say I'm going to do. Okay. And that follow through, okay, is really what gets you there. And not only that, it's financial too. You know what? I, I wouldn't be sitting here if uh, she and I, I mean, she's the best partner I could ever have in, in, in the world. She gave me opportunity that no other artist would give me at the time. You know what I mean? She was the first one to step up to the plate and go, okay, Danny, I see your value. I see that you're a hard worker, you know, because listen, in order for me to be the best, I have to work harder than my competition, than other management companies. I got to work smarter. I got to be more calculated, more methodical. Okay. Whatever it takes. There's not, it's not nine to five, no pun intended. I take calls 24 seven, the weekends, two in the morning, four in the morning, six in the morning. I don't care. I get up and do it. Whatever happens, I got to do. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be ugly, you know, because I've dealt with all of them. And, you know, but I am uh, big on follow through, follow through, follow through, follow through. And if you say something, you do it. You've established rapport through credibility. And that brings me to my next question. You started recently working with Barry Gibb, the BG's catalog. Obviously, the guy's a, a monumental icon as well. What is the value proposition that you can present to an artist at that level to say, hey, there's still a lot to be done with you and your brand, and there's still a lot of monetization left on the table. And how do you make that pitch? How do you make that case? Is it similar to what you went through with Dolly and proving yourself early in order to get to the point where you can make that case? No, I, I think what happens is Barry, a lot, a lot like Dolly, doesn't need me for anything. You know what I mean? He doesn't need me financially, doesn't need me to be a big star, doesn't need me anything. What I'm trying to do, though, is look at uh, Barry's situation and uh, elevate it. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's not enough of the younger generation. I want to reintroduce Barry to the younger generation. That's my, that's me, my personal goals, because a lot of the younger generation don't realize who this man is. They don't realize that he is like one of the largest 
best songwriters and the most successful songwriters in the world. And I think well, look at the track record you have with Dow with Dolly. I mean, she's she's the coolest thing to the youngest generation right now. Right. You've done that. Yeah, yeah, I've made her current. You know what I mean? I, I, everything that we're doing is extremely current, and that's all through heavy TV, heavy viral marketing. You know, and we have all sorts of things coming out. You know, Barry's uh, a hard worker, and you know the guy's always writing, always working. He's like Dolly; they just have that old school mentality, old school work ethic. And so, you know what? Anything he wants to do, I'm here to do it with him. Man, you have been so generous with your time, and I know how valuable your time is. I can't believe that was an hour and it just flew by. Was it? <laughs> yes, believe it or not. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Speak to our audience. A lot of the people who uh, listen to this podcast are uh, emerging artists and emerging industry people. And uh, there's just a wealth of knowledge here. So thank you for sharing. So thank you. It's been a pleasure, brother. Pleasure, brother.